Bracken and Bell together. There's Cooper breaking through. A chance now. This will be the fourth ball for Aberdeen. Cooper puts it in with his mind. Well, suddenly it's become a rout. Because when things are going wrong against you, you don't get the breaks of the ball. Cooper in with Stewart. He didn't really know where the ball was, but he got the break. And as you say, it's a schoolboy's dream being able to take your time. Knowing that really, all you've got to do is crack it into the back of the net. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Here We Go podcast. A slightly sombre uh, episode we're going to be recording tonight. We do have some football we'll be discussing later on in the show, uh, but we're going to start things off um, with the sad news today um, of the passing of former manager uh, Eb Skoda, who passed away today aged 75. Eb joined Aberdeen in 1999 from Bromby um, after a really successful spell. Uh, four Danish championships, three Danish cups. Sign, sign some exciting players. We saw some really good times under him. And our, the first thing we're going to do speak about is his former player, uh, David Priest, um, joined us um, slightly earlier this evening. Um, they both arrived in Petaudry in the summer of 1999. Um, and we began by asking David what his first impressions of Eb were. You know, I, I would have wished that, you know, would have been brought in there at least a few weeks sooner so I could develop some co- sort of relationship with him before prior to that first game. And it was just, you know, th- Thrown at the deep end uh, with him, but it was for all uh, you know for all the tough times that we had. It, it never the, the relationship between him and the, the players never really soured. You know, it's never got to a point where you know you hear of managers that uh, that, that lose the dressing room and there's a bitterness to the end to the end of the time at the club. It was never that way, and it was. I know that he was supposed to leave at the end of that season that he did leave and he ended up leaving a bit prematurely but it was probably the, the right way for him you know like it didn't get to a point that's where that happened and like I said to a lot of people regardless of what happened on the pitch or you know what whatever happened between players or, or whatever whatever happened there there was always a, a, a real sort of uh, affection for him the young team that he had at the time the, the young lads that he brought in the young lads he promoted from the 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 youth team and uh, the under 21s we all, we were like a, a, a bunch of sort of like naughty school kids and, and he was sort of like the a bit of a eccentric uncle that we had and it was kind of him trying to keep us from check all the time but we always had our respect and the immaturity that we showed sometimes off the pitch and sometimes on the pitch you know he understood that as well and, and he, he kept the group to, together and I think that um, more than anything the, the fondness that the players that's played under him have for him, the fondness that the, the, the fans have for him as well, and the fond memories they have of him, despite, you know, like I said, some of the tough times, it's a testament to, to, the, to the man he was, and, yeah, it, it, it's really sad news. Thinking back to, again, to, to some of his methods, uh, I remember at the time, we, the press obviously got wind of the fact that he'd brought mattresses into the to to the training sessions so that players could rest in between sessions. Um, but subsequently, I think we've heard that maybe he was a bit ahead of his time for for British football in terms of that sort of work and accepting the workload on players and so on. Now, I acknowledge obviously that keepers probably go off and do their own thing at training. But what what generally was it like at training compared to what you've been used to at Sunderland and Darlington? Yeah. I- you're right about you know the little things like the all the mattresses in the, you know in one of the rooms at Petodri, so you'd all have a sleep in between sessions, and that was because you know the, he upped the the workload of the of the players. You know we had Stuart Hogg at the club already, who was a fitness coach, but we upped our uh, workload with him, sort of you know with the Olympic lifting and things that I hadn't been used to at Darlington and Sunderland previously, and things that are just you know it's part and parcel of football now that's you know, that fit the side of the uh, of football and the strength and conditioning. But also, you know, it wasn't until I'd left, uh, left Aberdeen to, and, and, and moved on to Denmark and, and sort of furthered my, my football education elsewhere was, you know, the way that he was trying to play in those second and, and third years when, you know, there was talk of a blueprint of a 4-3-3 and 
it wasn't just about formations and that. It was about the, um, you know, the movements, the rotations on the pitch, and and probably there was a little looking back. There's probably a little breakdown in sort of the communication from him and the understanding of us as young players. Um, that it just didn't quite click, even though there was that improvement. You know, the, the after that sort of. That first season where it was a it was a bit of a disaster in the league, and uh, we we did get to those two cup finals. The improvement of seventh place and fourth place, and then obviously the, the European games that that came after that. Later on, it's only now that I can see, and, and obviously when I said when I left Aberdeen that you could see exactly what he was trying to do. And it was moving away from it was moving away from the type of football that was that was being played in. Um, you know, sort of in Britain at the time. I think that's always been my defence of him. You could see there was a plan, and you could see that generally, season on season, it was working. Until I think, as you said, that last season, I think things had been cut back and cut back and cut back. He'd lost a lot of his key players, like Rugby Winters and so on. At that point, I think, you know, he did make the sort of sensible call to probably get out before he was pushed. I'm interested, really, we've heard, obviously, about the malapropisms uh, and, and the dressing room and so on, but I'm more interested in what was a very tough first season. How did he manage to keep the morale in that dressing room up? He, he probably did a... It was a bit of a master stroke, actually. I know there was probably financial reasons behind it, too, but it was probably a, a master stroke from his point of view, sort of, to sort of ease all the uh, more experienced players out of, out of the door and, and focus on the youth. It would have been easy for the young players, you know, even like like myself, Jim McAllister, Jim, uh, Darren Mackey, people like that who were introduced in that season. It was probably easy for us to be damaged, but because there were so many young players and uh, some youthful sort of like innocence, if you will, that we just got on with things and we we didn't allow it to get damaged by it. And I think a lot of that had to do with the youth of the group. We kind of just bonded together and. Even in the tough times in those second and third seasons, when there was some, you know, there was some bad defeats. You know, at home to Livingston the, in the League Cup, six-one, the the Bohemians defeat. There's still um, there's a bit of a gallows humour around in the dressing room, and it was kind of like it did. It, it did don't don't get us wrong, it did affect us, but it also it, it it helped us get through and sort of kind of put it on one side and just move on to the next thing. And what you call it innocence or ignorance. But it helped us to get, to get through it anyway. And you've seen players from that team, you know, did go on to do good things. Jamie McAllister went down to England, to, went down to Hearts in England, uh, to Bristol City and became a, a good championship player. You know, Kevin McNaughton went down to the championship and, and played in the Premier League with Cardiff. Uh, other players went into playing Europe with other clubs. And it, it, you know, and again, that's a testament to him that he was the one who developed them. He was the one who brought them into the team and given their first taste of first team football. And you know, we, we've got a, we put a, we put a WhatsApp group together of all the lads who were there at that time, and there's no negativity there at all. It's everyone's looks back with that fondness and and, and looks at Evan. I keep saying it; it's, it's more of an eccentric uncle than a, as a, a father figure type. He never really let us get that close to him. You know, there was always mm-hmm. that distance between us. And um, but again, that was healthy as well to keep us on our toes. As you've already said, um, indirectly because of the signing of Peter Keir, um, you yourself got the chance to move to Denmark uh, after leaving Pitodri. Did you ever get the chance to, to run into Ebby again, or maybe even understand just how well respected and loved he was uh, was at Bromby? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I had a brief conversation with him in uh, when I first went over to Denmark. You know, um, you know, he got in contact just to, you know, just welcome me over there and just to, just to chat about things, and which was really nice. And then during my time there, he said a lot of nice things in the uh, in the media about me, and and yeah, it was. I mean, you've, you've probably seen it today on social media if you if you you know search his name on Twitter and you look at all the. Not just from Brom- Bromley fans, but you look at all the Danish fans in, in in general. You know, there's a there's a lot of affection for him there, a lot of well wishes for his family, because he is a big he is a big figure in, in Danish football, and, and he's well remembered. And I think that um, yeah, if it wasn't for him um, having that sort of you know maybe able to see that the, the Danish influence and the 
sort of the, the Danish mindset and with Peter Kerr. Yeah, I wouldn't have ended up there and I wouldn't have ended up where I am now in, in Sweden with Osterson because of that experience I've already had in Scandinavia. So I'm glad I got the, the, the time towards the end of his, uh, his time at Aberdeen to, to tell him how grateful and thankful I was and, and, uh, and to speak to him once I got in Denmark and I'm glad he knows how, how appreciative I am of, uh, of what he did for me. And just one final thing, David. What's the one memory of him that comes instantly to mind when you think of him? You know what? I mean, it, it, it's hard to get away from the, all those little sort of funny quirks that, that he had. And around the around the stadium, around Petodri and around the training ground, he was, you know, like I said, he he, he wasn't one for getting close to the players. He, you know, he, he wasn't really one to chat to to the players on like a you know one to one level. But you know, you saw the you saw the, the sort of the humorous side of him a lot of the time when he's trying when he's trying to be uh, funny. He wasn't that funny, and, and he, when he was trying to be serious, he was probably at his most hilarious. And I think all those little quirks and the little um, the, the little sayings that he had, and, uh, and and the times when he would lose his temper a little bit, and he'd get his words mixed up between Danish and English, you know, it was uh, it, it was hilarious at the time. And but like I said, it just it just made you like him even more. And yeah, those are the memories that I'll. I'll, I'll always have with me and I'll, I'll never forget them. Richard, I think one of the things that we can all take, um, and I know, and I say this judging from what um, David has also told us the first time he was on the podcast a few years back, is just the warmth that people had for Eb. Yeah, that's been very clear in everything that's come over today, whether that be people who worked with him as players, whether that be supporters who met him on the old occasion or those who worked in the media that's been that's come across loud and clear from everyone that interacted with him and um as david said it it's really quite telling the sort of breadth of the responses in denmark himself um martin actually i know you've got you've got a danish wife maybe you can speak a little to this but uh, he was a big figure in danish football generally obviously he was he was uh, linked by marriage to the, the royalty that is the Laudrup uh, clan over there. And um, he did amazing things with uh, Brombo. That, that was a serious team he built up in the mid-90s. You know, we may have only known them when they came to Petaudry and were very efficient, clinically efficient, I think, in beating us 2-0 at Petaudry and able to keep us at arm's length very comfortably in the return leg. But, you know, the year before they'd knocked out Liverpool, and the round after uh, beating us, they went to Kaiserslautern and won five nil. Uh, a serious football team that he that he put together, um, more or less from scratch as well over the over the course of a few years there. So um, a big figure in Danish football. It, it, it was a exciting signing at the time. It, it was it, it was an appointment made with a. A lot of thought, I thought. Um, it was it was one that seemed to tick a lot of boxes. It was one I think the club had spent a lot of time, you know, rather than just kind of going for a safe pair of hands or going for who the current flavour of the month is in Aberdeen. You know, I thought I thought it was a very a, a smart and bold move that it didn't. I mean, I think there's a tendency when someone passes away to to kind of sugarcoat their achievements a bit. Uh, it was. Again, as I said there with David, there was a plan. He had a plan and it did get better season on season until um, that last year when I, I think he rather sensibly uh, decided to step away rather than see his his work just collapse underneath him. Uh, but there were certainly some very tough times in that first season. Uh, but, but yeah, a, a lovely, unique character and uh, clearly someone who um, everyone who encountered him had uh, a lovely thing to say about and Martin, obviously, um, over your years at the Red Final, you'll have ha- we've we've obviously read lots of lots of interesting things about um, Eb in the in the fanzine. Now, what's what's your what's your um, take on you know this terrible news? Well, first of all, it would just be to echo the sentiments of both of yourselves and obviously of uh, fans and, and former players alike on social media today, and obviously great to hear from. David Priest as well. It was quite clear from the responses from a lot of players. Um, I saw that you retweeted a response from Kev McNaughton. You think of some of the kind of younger players that would have came through under uh, Evie, like Kev, 
Phil Maguire, Darren Mackey, so a lot, a lot of players who got an opportunity under the circumstances at the club because obviously um, it really shouldn't be underestimated what a really difficult set of circumstances um, Ebby was working under basically from the, the get-go when he came up, came out to the club. Um, uh, a lot of people kind of remember the first six or seven games under Ebby where we went winless and goalless um, and I think a lot of people forget in that context you know just just what a tough situation he was coming into I had a quick look at the results um, in the first part of 1999 effectively the, 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 the tail end of uh, Paul Hegarty's caretaker uh, run I think we lost six in the last seven games under that there was the 4-0 loss to Dundee United at Pataudry when Nigel Pepper managed to come on for a minute get sent off um, and uh, closed it out with a 5-2 defeat at home to Hearts so um, I think the, the malaise was well set in before uh, Evie got there. It certainly didn't improve immediately but what did happen very quickly afterwards was there was uh, an incredible feel-good factor that started coming once we started getting what became started out as an unexpected goal for Andy Dow in, in another defeat against United or, um, and then I, what I, I loved in, in, in your tweeted message about um, the uh, the CFAX madness of the 6-5 result against Motherwell because that's exactly how I experienced that game sitting at home in a midweek uh, evening trying scarcely believing my eyes when the, the ridiculous scoreline came through um, and as the time went along um, you know he managed to get, you know, some of his own players, a lot of the Scandinavian guys that kind of shored the ship in the meantime, the likes of the, the Gunnvites and uh, uh, Tommy Solbergs. Um, I seem to remember yourselves in a previous podcast talking about Adolf Stavrum being your uh, striker of the of, of the century, as it were, for Aberdeen at that time. So, you know, there was a lot of good quality players he was able to bring in as well. And, you know, one of my personal favourites, HM Zero Ali. Um, uh, a guy who I really enjoyed watching. I was lucky enough to be at what I always considered a turning point game of that season, the Scottish Cup game at Love Street, um, January of 2000. Um, we were bottom of the table, submitted and were top of the championship. I think everybody fancied us to, to go out, and you were duly about to go out there, and then the Serial Alley turned out a, a bit of magic and uh, turned that around from then, and, and, and it really kind of got things going after that so um, yeah but as far as the man himself is concerned the quotes were absolutely fantastic um, you know the fact that there's a stats in miniskirts account that exists purely from uh, one of the legendary quotations that came out of him one of the best bits of information I've found out uh, only today was um, I'll, I'll maybe cutting forward to your tweet section uh, later on some responses from uh, other dandies but I saw the first one there was from a fellow Red Final contributor who, who revealed that uh, his 18 uh, year old son has a middle name of Ebby um, now if that's not a sign of enduring love of a, of a former manager I don't know what is so um, re- regardless of the variety of some of the results over the time there's no, there's no doubt that he was a man that struck a chord with a lot of the support and um, uh, I think a lot of people will be sharing in our our sadness at this time Yeah and it is actually remarkable how fondly remembered he is versus his actual record and cold hard wins and there's probably a couple of reasons for that Um, you know the first one being that we did get better as time went on I think the fans were able to feel a kind of bond with that young team that were coming through. There was a siege mentality right at the start, definitely as well, that was that kicked in when you know everybody else was criticising our guy, so we were going to stand up for our guy. And then I think as time went on and it was clear that that first season was a real struggle, there was an element of an almost tartan armification, if you kind of get what I mean there, in that we were there just to almost enjoy ourselves so we we knew that we probably weren't going to seriously compete and it became about the experience today the downside to that is that you end up doing things like conga lines at Hamden when you're 4-0 down that sort of thing but it, it certainly was a very enjoyable period following uh, Aberdeen for me 
but I think we also have to accept that, that that a lot of that is tied into sort of what age I was at at that time as well. But yeah, there was before today there was there was always a lot of residual fondness for Ebb, and you know we did a Don't Look Back show, Martin, on season ninety nine uh, two thousand, which by rights should have been absolutely miserable, a horrible listen, horrible recollections of a dreadful set of fixtures and results. But it wasn't. It was upbeat. It was fun. People had fond memories of that time, that season, that team. And I think a large part of that is just because of the character of those involved and the character of the manager. I, I absolutely agree with that, Richard. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you say, you know, that should have been that that part that look back, don't look back podcast we did should have been a, been a scathing review of that season, but it wasn't. Um, and this, for the same as you, you know, that was you know those times were. I, I, the, as you say, it was like the tart and armification of a support. You no, know, we're there. You know, you're there to have a good time because we knew fine that you know we weren't. We you know most games we probably weren't going to win. Uh, but it was it was a it was a really it was a, it was a good time to be there. You know, you had a, I mean at the age, you know, you're you're only a little bit older than me, but at the age I was at as well. You know, you're there. You're with your mates. First proper like serious you know, spell where you can go in a lot of away games. Um, it was for me anyway, and it was, it was a really it was a really um fun time. Um, we'll go. Well, like you say, Martin mentioned there. Obviously, we've got some. We we'll put it to Twitter. We we'll put it to social media um, to get some of the replies. So yeah, the first one we have to go to um, comes from the Twitter account ha- at Happy Clapped Out, which comes um, telling us that yeah, his um, his eighteen-year-old um, son Connor Alexander Ebb Fordyce um, exists on planet Earth, which is just which is just the most one of the most fantastic things I've ever seen. Um, I just hope that, you, that young Connor's future works out slightly better than Zoltan Varga Anderson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, um, if, if you're out there and you don't know what that is, Google Google who Zoltan Varga Anderson is. Um, is an entertaining story, um, to say the least. Uh, we have some of the other replies we have are really good. Um, Stuart McMichael uh, remembers the news bulletin footage when the team bus broke down as the team left Pataudry for the Scottish Cup final in 2000, and uh, Ebb was there with his head stuck in, looking at the engine, and looking at the engine to see if he could help. Um, he's a proper gent, isn't he? Um, everybody, a lot of the replies that came in remember um, obviously the set pieces. Um, and you know, we've joked about this on here before, Richard, um, about how this, the, the kickoff became a set piece, um, and it, and, it, and it, it, it did get a little bit annoying. Um, but God, it was entertaining. The, the, the corner kicks, which became colloquially known as the Benny Hill route. <laughs> yeah, as someone pointed um, out, uh, Scotland were using those last week. So uh, you know, the man was a pioneer. This, I mean, we should say that there were plenty out there who who still regard his time at Aberdeen as a an unmitigated disaster. Richard Gordon, I think, is very much his chief amongst them. If you he, ever hear him talk about that period, he he remains unrepentant. Uh, no argument will ever win him round on that. And uh, I, I, I I get that. I I do get that because it it, it was a period in which it, you know a lot of that luster. That Aberdeen had built up in the previous two decades, and, it, and whilst Martin is right to say that you know the malaise had started long before Scovedale had come, you know it was it, it was every week kind of for a while that seemed that new depths were being plumbed, uh, and amongst some remarkable results, there were some absolutely hellish ones as well, and uh, you don't want to remember the bad side on a day like today, but. Uh, it, it certainly wasn't all sweetness and light, but but I do think it, it is remarkable that it, it his, you know how worked up people get these days if we if we fail to win a game for God's sake. There, were, there was plenty of uh, angry people around last Saturday after drawing nil nil at Tannadice. Maybe this was the last kind of pre-social media manager as well. Maybe maybe that helped him. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair. I mean, no. If we if now we open nowadays you no know, and I don't just mean you no know, this season or anything you know, or anything to do with Derek McInnes but I think in recent history when social media has been a thing had we opened the season with um, seven defeats on the bounce um, it, things would not be things would probably not be as happy um, and smiley as they have been um, that's certainly for sure um, a couple of other memories that we got was um, uh, Gav Box was. Um, Speaking about the noise, last in memory is the, celeb- the fist bump celebration at the, um, the winner against Hibs in the, that semi final. Um, captured captured a moment for him after such a terrible season. Um, yeah, that was a that's one where you know, a fantastic finish there by by Andy Dow. Um, when a season when you know 
But if you think that's now that season when Andy Dow was our best player, um, Andy Dow, as we mentioned in the in the review podcast, we did. You no, know, Andy Dow had the season of his life that first year. Um, it just goes to show that you know it was a really was a crazy year. It, it, it's funny you mention that because um, like like yourselves, I was of an age um, that that ninety nine two thousand season was the the end of my teenage years or the beginning of my twenties. And I remember. Um, you both talked about the tartan armification of the support. I remember being on a bus back from an away game against Dundee in February with one three one, and there was legitimate Andy Dow for Scotland chat on that <laughs> bus on the way home. That that was the level it got to. Uh, yeah, uh, I think well, one of the other ones we got was um, Rob Monroe was telling us that um, after after a game against him, Simon's old man re- re- retreats to the Carling Golf Club for a couple of pints, and on the way home, the bump at Ebb leaving the stadium. Um, and they shook his hand, thanking him for the result, and he smiled back and says, "No, you deserve it. What a ge- what a gentleman. A lot of managers um, would take the credit, just say thanks, and move along. That was no, that's a really, it's a, it's a really mark of the man. It was a pro- it was a real class act. Of all the things, no, the, the things that we happened, no, there was highs and lows that we mentioned there. What's the one thing that stands out for you? I think in general, it was just the fact that he was clearly just a, a genial gentleman of, of a person, and while. I entirely accept there will be uh, a tranche of our support. Again, maybe a, a, an older and more gnarled uh, set of supporters who uh, uh, remember that as a, as a very low period of, of, of our time. Um, I don't think even the people that didn't enjoy the football in that time would have had anything to say against Ebby, Ebby as a person. Um, and, and the moniker Uncle Ebby seemed to just fit so well to the perception of the man and the character and it was that combination of someone who he'd, um, he'd clearly worked at a high, a very high level very recently when you think, I was having a look back his last season at Bromby where he was you know, managing a three, three time repeating Danish champion and they had a Champions League fixtures, they, they, I think they were the second Danish team to, to get into uh, the Champions League and the group they had got was like the, the treble winning Man United team uh, Barcelona and Bayern Munich who they actually beat at home so he was clearly a very capable manager uh, under, un, under, under better circumstances um, but I think he realised uh, both at the time that he was here that you know, the kind of funding wasn't going to be there so he did such a, a good job of you know, sourcing players that he knew from the Scandinavian area but also to kind of bring, bring through and develop those kind of younger players um, and, and I think he's just testament it's not just you know we're talking about the kind of reaction he's got from supporters but um, it, for me the, the, the telling aspect is you know the amount of love that's shared amongst the players who have worked under him and that's from the kind of senior veterans you know the guys like the Ian Jesses of the world who would have been you know you know veteran players at the club at that time to someone like David Priest who really you know seems to feel that he, you know he was given a great opportunity at the club with Ebby um, and then a lot of the younger guys, the, the McNaughtons and the Russell Andersons, who, who really got a chance to develop under him. And I think you know that's an underrated aspect as well. Of you know, he clearly was a person who was who was good with the younger players, and then you know, develop developing them as both as players and as and as people. So um, you know, I think you know what what sticks with me is just the, the the amount of love, respect, and you know, endearing feelings that that still exist for the man. One of the things that came up on some of the replies, Richard, when I p- we popped up on Facebook as well, was um, someone reminded me that something I completely forgotten about was, of course, we had Danish Day at Pataudry one one of the Saturdays as well, didn't we? Yeah, uh, the, the day that we qualified for Europe by beating Livingston three 0 towards the end of uh, season two thousand and one two thousand and two, uh, and you know that was a season obviously that had the nine home league wins in a row, the, the win over Celtic with the snowballs and the caterpillar and uh, the daddy turn and and all that. Um, it still managed to contain a, a six one home humping to Livingston, but uh, <laughs> it was just the, the sort of nature of the team at that point. If anything about Ebby, I want to thank him for giving me the opportunity to follow the Dons to Berlin because that was my first away European trip with Aberdeen. And they say you'll never forget your first. Well, that was that was incredible. I mean, okay, it wasn't him that was singing the European song in the Irish bar in Berlin, but uh, he made that happen uh, by, you know, transforming a team that has finished bottom of the league two years earlier to to one that held its own uh, and qualified for Europe through the league two years later. 
So that's our, that's our tribute, our memories to a very good man, one of the nicest possible men I think that Aberdeen Football Club has seen come through the doors. Condolences to all his family and friends and um, stand free, Eb. We're going to move along with the show now, and uh, the next one that we're going to discuss is well, we came back. We, we came back recently. This is our first first full podcast since the international break, um, in which we saw a long overdue Scotland call up for a man who is has been a stalwart of Aberdeen's Aberdeen's defence for many years, uh, Mr. Andrew Considine. Now, Martin, um, Andy was a late he was a late call up for the games against Slovakia and the Czech Republic, but he started the games as a part of a back three. Um, Steve Clark, the manager, um, has said that you know he fitted in perfectly. You know he knew exactly what he was looking for, and Andy looked like he'd been been playing for Scotland for years, wouldn't he? I thought he did fantastically well. Um, again, I'll give I'll give I'll give credit to where 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 I see those comments. I think it was Ben Palmer who was on Twitter saying that finally the debate over uh, Kieran Tierney and Andy Robertson has been decided, and the answer is Andy Considine. Um, well, I I I. I, I Question whether that will end up being the case in real life, but uh, it gave me it gave me a bit of a laugh. But I think it's really good. Uh, one one of the repeated gripes that I've had as a as a red final contrib- contributor um, is the uh, discord, perhaps there's been at times between um, supporters of the game domestically in this country and and what gets turned out in the national team, and it's that kind of attitude of. You have a lot of very worthy players in, you know, playing in the Scottish Premiership, who never seem to get an opportunity. And in the meantime, you know, previous managers are scoured, kind of third and fourth tier of English football to try and find someone with a Scottish granny to play instead. Um, and the name that always springs to mind, in, often in those discussions, is actually a contemporary of Andy Considine's from back in the under twenties uh, international fold, which is Mark Reynolds, who is a, a player. Um, probably deserved a, a cap as much if not more than, 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 than Andy and repeatedly got into squads and never got the opportunity so it's been very pleasing in general to see now and, and you know let's not let's not be around the bush it's probably come you know through the fact that we've had to start going to some of the the, the, the players that have done done it, done it domestically rather than there being kind of alternatives but a lot of players from a lot of kind of clubs, the 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 Motherwell's, Kilmarnock's, uh, the Burnians in the world are are, are start, starting to get players featuring in the in the international side. And coming back to Conci, I mean, I couldn't think of a a, a better deserving player um, for all of the flack that he's sometimes got over the the, the many 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 years that he's played with Aberdeen. Um, in reality, you might you might not agree with this. Um, but he has probably been consistently one of the best left-sided defenders in the country for at least six, seven years now. And um, unfortunately, he's played, um, when he'd been playing at left-back, he was playing at a position when the likes of Tierney and Robertson would be keeping out of the team. But with with that conversion to a, a three at the back, um, and, and Considine effectively now that Aberdeen have been playing three at the back recently, um, I think a, a, a nice coincidence of maybe a scarcity of resources at centre back, coupled with a player who's been playing regularly and playing well in that position, led to him getting his call up. And it's just fantastic. It's good to see someone, a one, a one club man. Um, you know, maybe he may he may well end up being the the, the, the first player since maybe you're maybe going back to Willie Miller for a, for a player that may well end up seeing his entire career out in in, in the Aberdeen shirt and and to also see him. Get international honours. Um, I did put up in Twitter myself whether you know that there was a debate now with regards to you know from our one cap wonders whether himself or Doug Rookie would have been the best one cap don. But he's he's obviously got two caps now, so um, he's he surpassed even the great Dougie. Um, but um, you know, fantastic two two internationals, two clean sheets, and in what could turn out to be important games for us as well. I mean, at the end of the day, Nations League football means something now if we. If we do, by some miracle, find our way a, a, a year or so from now, um, qualifying for the the next World Cup, then he'll have had no small part in doing it. Let's not let's not m- make any mistakes here as well. Um, no, and Considine he fully deserves this. I mean, I did see some of the kind of 
there was a bit of snark on Twitter from, you know, mainly from fans of other clubs, but there was a bit of snark about it as well, comparing it to, for example, when Ryan Giggs won Sports Personality of the Year. You know, he just he got it for being a, being around for ages and being and playing at a, playing at a, a, a good level. Um, Considine, this is this caps weren't because weren't a, like a sympathy vote or a thank you for a long career. He was in that squad and he was called up. Yes, due to missing players, but he's absolutely there on merit as well, wasn't he? I, I would agree with that, and I think Martin's absolutely right to give credit to Steve Clark for um, you know not going and scouring who people's aunties are or whether their mum listened to Rod Stewart during pregnancy of guys in the <laughs> English lower tiers. You know, for, for believing in the guys from the SP, uh, SPFL. Declan Gallagher, for example, I would never have looked at our games against another one and think that Declan Gallagher is capable of playing as well as he did for Scotland in the two games that I watched. Uh, because, you know, generally speaking, I would watch Scotland games, but recently probably fallen out of love with it because of that attitude. Because when you're picking guys who have never played club football in Scotland, you just lose that relationship. And like Scotland manager after Scotland manager seemed to do that, just seemed to cast, cast the net wider and wider and wider. And each one of the guys that came in, guys like Gallagher, even guys like Stephen O'Donnell, who... You know, couldn't even get a, get a decent offer once he'd left Kilmarnock. A decent offer, offer to justify leaving the country anyway that he's pitched up a, on a short term deal at Motherwell. Even he's found that he's he's not been outclassed at international level. I think it was the red final that um, uh, on Twitter brought up Brian Irvin, and the comparison was absolutely there in my mind when the call up was made. And you know, you kind of knew that he wouldn't let Scotland down because you've watched him for so long and be so consistent for Aberdeen but you were still worried you were still worried that that might happen that it might just go wrong for him and you didn't want it you desperately didn't want it to go wrong for him of all people for Andy on that night which I know must have meant so much to him and his family as well so some things good things do happen to good people and it was also the unifying nature of of when he it was announced he was starting and you know, the whole feel-good feeling amongst the Aberdeen support. We, a, a fairly fractured bunch over the past couple of years in particular, you get the feeling. Moments like that, evenings like that, are, are a nice to remind us that we have a, a commonality. We'll come back from the international break and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of combine these two, the two games so we'll discuss them kind of over at once because they do overlap. I think there's a lot of common themes in both of these. Obviously, we're away to Dundee United. Um, and we're at home at Hamilton. Um, we're fairly, I think, in terms of play, we're you know, largely dominant in both. Um, however, we're, pr- we're quite wasteful, I would say, in front of goal against Dundee United. Um, but, Richard, against Ake's, um did we see the full benefit of having a proper, in brackets, proper number nine on the pitch versus the idea of the false number nine of Marley Watkins um, against United? Well, I, I think we saw a defence that doesn't that didn't defend as well as the United defence did on 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 Sunday. Largely, I thought United's problems stemmed more from their midfield being pretty much non-existent rather than the defensive shape. Uh, Hamilton made some made some pretty basic errors that helped us, obviously. But it's a conversation we've been having all season, isn't it, Martin? About um, you know whether the the false nine of Marley Watkins makes us play better, makes us look better but maybe meaning less goals. And um, one game isn't going to sell for sure, but certainly what Ryan Edmondson did on, on Wednesday night was it was two good strikers' goals. Uh, the first one, he finds that uh, yard of space in the penalty box and he finishes well, um, first-time finish on the cutback from Johnny Hayes. And the second one, he's alert when Scott Wright has forced the error off the Hamilton defender. He's got the he's got the pace to break through the gap that uh, emerged for him, and he takes the goal very very well. So it's two really good bit of strikers play, and I know that on on Wednesday night um, I, I kind of said, oh, it won't be his first senior goal. He would have scored for York. I, I looked it up, and I was of course as always bloody wrong. He hadn't scored for York. He moved on from York. Leeds picked him up after three weeks after his, after his debut or something like that. So having already spent two minutes moaning about that on Wednesday, I've spent another 30 seconds tonight. But it, it was really good strikers play and, and what he's done there. Because I think up until Wednesday, he'd, he'd been fairly impressive against uh, on his debut. 
And then obviously he's also just coming back from injury. I don't suppose we should forget that. But there was just a sense, especially when he, he came on at Tanadice for the last half hour, and I felt if anything we looked less threatening with him up top. And it was beginning to question is it going to happen for him? So, you know, I'm really happy that he, he staked his claim as he did on Wednesday night. And there, just just so we can we can record it as well, um, for those of you that complain about complain that Richard never admits he's wrong, um, there you are. Um, you know, I know 2020 has been a crazy year, um, and now we've had Richard Hay admitting he's wrong in the podcast. Um, whatever next. <laughs> so, so Martin, um, Richard obviously mentioned that Ake's did make some um, fairly basic mistakes in defence. Um it was it was sort of fifteen minute, fifty to twenty minutes of devastating attack and play from us versus shambolic from defending from them from Arkes who to be fair to them do play quite do play quite an open game anyway. I think there's always the temptation when when Aberdeen are playing at home against a, a you know a team that's well now bottom in the league um, to just effectively write it off to a side that isn't defending very well. I mean, they certainly aren't defending very well. They're you know. Um, was it five goals they'd conceded at the weekend beforehand, and, and, and four and a half to ourselves? But I, I would I'd be more than happy to give credit to Aberdeen with the way that they played in order to be able to generate some of those goals as well. I mean, certainly, I think the the, well, the amount of space that was given to uh, Tommy Open in the box for his goal, I think you'd have to put a, a lot of that, um, a lot of the blame at Hamilton for that. But. Um, um, Fight! Show, show me it! Show me a defence in the country that would have stopped the, the the work that led to Lewis Ferguson's goals. So not 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 only the strike itself, um, but the, the 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 play that led up to it. You know, um, um, I've been waiting for quite a while. I, I was actually quite a prominent advocate for getting a, a a fully blown striker in the team for that sort of game, um, and I think you saw the benefit. If anything, I thought it helped Marley Watkins as well because it gave him. You know, we gave him a chance to kind of play into the channels and then have somebody interplay with, and um, that came off that came off brilliantly. So he was involved in a lot of the play as well. Um, Ryan Hedges actually did well from being slightly out of position as well. But I, I, I just think having having an out and out striker like Edmondson in in for me did provide that kind of cutting edge that we really just haven't had beforehand. And it's telling that I think so. We'd scored ten league goals before that, and half of those have come from penalties. So five open play goals before the Hamilton game, and now you know almost almost doubling that number after after the the, the game against Hamilton. Now, again, do, doing doing that against Hamilton during the week is one thing. Um, doing it in, against our opposition in the next three games to come will be something else entirely. So whether. Whether the manager wants to stick with that and wants to stay with an out-and-out striker up front, or or, or, or whether he, he may feel more comfortable reverting back to having that kind of you know the kind of maybe three hard-working interchangeable players up front and a, and a false nine system, I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'll be honest. I wouldn't necessarily blame him if he did want to go back to a more tried and trusted setup for for those games coming forward. But at least we now know whether whether he whether he starts or whether he's someone we can bring on from the bench. We, do have somebody who can not only provide a, a cutting edge and, and, a, and, a, and a finishing um, that we've maybe been lacking beforehand, but I mean also somebody that I thought Cook, Cook did quite well in, in interlinking and, and, and being involved in the build-up play as well. And uh, Martin, I'll, I'll put this to you first. Um, the strike by Lewis Ferguson, have we seen goal of the season? Yes. <laughs> a, fir- a firm answer, that's what I'd like to see. Uh, Richard? Well, I, I hope there's more and better ones to come, but it was some goal. Certainly was. Uh, now, we've obviously got the, the games against Celtic on Sunday to look forward to as well, but um, obviously the transfer window's now closed. Uh, it closed a few a few weeks ago. Um, are we happy with it? I want to ask if we're happy with the squad. I mean, is, is Tommy Hoban extended the deal, Richard, until his end of the season possibly the most vital news to come out of this? Well, the biggest news is obviously Scott McKenna leaving. Um, and, you know, I don't think we should underestimate what a, a big player he's been for Aberdeen, even in the past couple of seasons, when maybe the initial excitement about his breakthrough has worn off a little bit. Um, he has put in some really big performances in big games. 
helped us to keep clean sheets uh, away from home at, at venues where we've been under the cosh. And this season, he, he he looked, you know, absolutely on top of his game again, and a- absolutely worthy of uh, attention. Probably in excess of uh, Nottingham Forest, to be perfectly honest. And uh, you know, whilst there was a a lot of focus on him for his debut, you know, I note that um, he's played two games with Forest this week. They they won one and he kept a clean sheet, and they drew one one in the other one. So he'll just go away and he'll do his business quietly, and I'm absolutely certain that um, we will see a return on, on that sell-on fee we've got for him. So the question is, you know, have we got enough cover in the building to to deal with his loss? And Gregory coming back made a lot of sense in terms of the way we're currently playing because we didn't really have anybody to cover for that left wing-back position. Equally, a little bit lighter in terms of left-backs. Obviously, doubly so once you let uh, Jack McKenzie leave the building. Um, is he a left-sided centre-back? The manager seems to think he can play there, and certainly his physicality, his build, his height, suggests that he should be able to do it. And we know he's versatile due to his stint, obviously, in the midfield when he was here last season. But my recollection of Greg from last from last season, from playing left-back, is that defending wasn't a part of his game that he relished the most. I'm not saying he was bad at it, but I thought where he really thrived and where he really seemed happiest was bombing forward, was going forward. So from that perspective, I, I'm not sure I'd be terribly keen to, to play him at left wing back. So that leaves you basically relying on the three of, of Considine, Taylor and Hoban to be fit. And that that's obviously, that, that that's trickiest. But well, whilst Michael Devlin's out, you're relying on those three to be fit. Um, so maybe we're one body short in centre-half from an ideal situation but again we have to accept that this whole season this whole past six months this whole season stretching out for potentially who knows how much longer is not ideal and the financial circumstances we're operating in aren't ideal so uh, we're not going to get everything that we want even after selling some of the crown jewels and Martin, Martin, where do you sit? I mean, you're looking at, you know, Richard obviously mentioned there about being one short. I mean, do you think that's the most glaring um, thing that we're seeing? Or is there, do you see as a, maybe perhaps a weakness you, you've identified? I think the, the point that Richard made about with, with McKenna leaving is, is actually a really good point because um, I think there was an acceptance that the, the move to go to, well, 3 4 3 really is probably an information, or 3 4, you know. And whatever combination of three players up front, that that now seems to be the system that we're going with in the meantime. And and, and I agree that if that's going to be the way we play going forward, um, we we really do just have the kind of the three players we're playing right now in in in, in the back three. Devlin, if he comes back, you know, or if he's fit, but both both Devlin and Hoban have both had their injury concerns, and I think you might be asking a lot for all all four of those uh, players to to maintain their fitness. Um, and I do wonder whether that the three at the back will be uh, persevered with after after this month, because on the one hand, so we were talking about the, the potential shortage of players in, in, in the centre-back roles. The, the, the other area I've been more concerned about is we, we now seem to be getting a surplus of full-backs that don't seem to have any place to play at the moment. So as you say, we've got Greg Lee come back, who would nominally be that kind of um, replacement left-back role. Um, and then you've got both Shea Logan and uh, the, the mysterious case of Ronald Hernandez. I'll, I'll bang my drum for Ronald Hernandez again here to say I really don't know and I would like to know what the background is with regards to um, his complete disappearance from involvement in the squad. Um, to, 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 not, to, be, to be going on international duty to uh, a country like Venezuela, which is ranked about 25 places higher in the FIFA rankings than Scotland is, and he's getting a game for them, and then to come back and not even be involved in the in the squad, there's there's clearly something more going on in the background to that that I, I simply refuse to believe that it's a Miles Anderson type situation of a guy that just can't play and we've wasted six figure someone and for for for, for nothing. Um, the the evidence that we have to go on would suggest he's clearly a capable player, and he, and, and we just don't have a role for him. So I'm, I'm beginning to wonder that while the three four three, you know, a, a big the big 
kind of case for that was that that was a system that, that suited the players that we had at the time. Um, it did at the time, and it certainly suited a situation where you had Scott McKenna right in the middle, who you knew would win every aerial uh, battle and, and shore things up in the middle and allow players like Considine and, 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 and Hoban to be able to kind of push forward. It's maybe, I, I don't want to denigrate Ash Taylor because he's actually done a, a good job um, in that replacement role. Um, um, but, you know, it's, it is one thing having that back three with McKenna. You know, anchoring it is another thing if it's going to be Ash Taylor going forward and indeed if there's changes going forward. But in terms of the rest of positions, I mean, um, if anything, I really don't know where, where else we would have looked to get more players in because in actual fact it's, uh, it's one of the deepest squads we've had in a number of years and I think it was commented by a lot of people in the build-up to the Hamilton game, you looked at you know the players on the bench, especially with someone like Sam Cosgrove back on on, on the subs bench. It's uh, it's clearly one of the deepest squads we've had in a long time, and I think the next few games will maybe give us a big indication of you know whether whether we're maybe back in a position where we can think about taking that next step of you know we've gotten our nose back in front of Hibs with a game in hand. Um, you know, can we take the challenge to a vulnerable Celtic and you know put ourselves back in that put put ourselves back in that mix? Yeah, just well, that's a good point about the squad. We tend as football fans to always just think about the here and now and think that, for example, that three four three is here to stay. It probably won't be. I mean, we know that throughout his time here, McInnes has favoured a back four, but not just that. I mean, if you think about how we lined up away in Lisbon, and this might give some clues to this weekend, but also maybe resolves that uh, right-back conundrum. It was with Shea Logan at right wing-back, and I think in the tougher games, in the harder games, if we are going to stick with a three-at-the-back system, it's probably going to look more like a 3-5-2 with more defensive-minded wing-backs. Now, I think Johnny Hayes, when fit and available, because I... I, I I worry, frankly, um, about the lack of news following his scan the other day. Um, I think Johnny Hayes is capable of doing that twin role, being both capable defensively and, and able to break forward as a as a more defensive wing-back. But no, I wouldn't necessarily have McLennan or Kennedy or someone doing that on the other side. I think that's when you'd be looking at Logan, you'd be looking at Hernandez for that role. Understandably, of course, the guy, Ronnie goes away, he gets minutes, plays 90 minutes uh, in one of the games and comes on as a late sub in the other games, two games that they lost. Understandably, there are question marks about that. It may or may not have an impact, but I know that this trip back home was the first time that he'd seen his wife and child in nine months. And you can, I think this far too readily overlooked the sort of human impact of things like that. It, it's not, as someone put to us um, on Twitter, it's not a, a great platform for sporting excellence. Let's put it that way. Well, that closes this week's uh, episode of Ronnie Watch. Um, you know, every, every episode we do, we're going to we're going to put it to the guests anyway. We're trying to think that you know to get something that an opinion other than Ronald Hernandez because it really is a it really is a curious case. Every season there's something like this, isn't there? Every season there's a one topic which you come back to time and time and time again. So yeah, I mean it was it was obviously a few seasons ago it was Kenny McLean. What's what's Kenny McLean's best position? Um, and this week this season we're just going to ask everybody who comes on um, what the what the hell's going on with Ronnie Hernandez. So it's no, it's good it's good that we've got these regular features we can bring up on the show. If it saves me having to speak about St Johnston away anytime soon, then that that that's fine. <laughs> The small mercies. So yeah, the, the, yeah, you, you've kind of you've mentioned it there though. Um, so this Sunday, yeah, we've got Celtic. Um, you've mentioned the potential, you know, to to see them perhaps a, a slight, you know, different formation. Um, I mean, the, Derek McInnes isn't going to isn't going to tinker with some you know, some untested formation, Richard. We know that much anyway. I mean. The, the question, you know, we're still probably going to have the three, but it'll be, you know, with more defensive wing-backs, as you mentioned there. I mean, but do you, does he go with the kind of the hard-working false nine, or does he go with someone like Edmondson, who's a target man? I mean, you know, we have seen Celtic have struggled at set-pieces, though. They brought in this big lad, Duffy, uh, who's who's not impressed for them. Um, watched the first, I watched the first half of their game last night, um, and I, yes, I understand it was against AC Milan, but the lad Welsh looked like a competition winner. Um, so really does no 
you, you would be, you would assume you would perhaps go with Edmondson to give him a bit, you know, a slight bit of physicality up there. Yeah, well, I think first off, it's quite interesting what might happen tactically because I think he might want to try and second guess what Neil Lennon's going to do because we've seen it a lot this season that Dermkins has, has basically matched up to the opposition um, and obviously to date Celtic have been experimenting with a three at the back three five two but at half time on uh, last night. I believe they went back to a four. And that I wonder if that might be the end for now of Neil Lennon's experiment with a three because apparently, and again, I didn't see the game, but apparently they played a lot better in that second half with a back four. So because of that, I wonder if we might see a more traditional Derek McInnes shape this weekend. Between that and the fact that we might be without a proper left wing back option as well. If you go with a flat back four, you can put Andy Considine out to left back. If we're without Johnny Hayes and with Greg Lee not quite fully fit, I, I would not want to see either Conor McLennan or Ryan Hedges shifted over to left wing back just to fill that role. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Martin. Well, Celtic, Celtic obviously have you know, lost their last couple of games. Um, I don't want to curse it, and you know, it's you know, it's football cliche time again. Um, dare I suggest that it's a good time to play them? Well, where where have we heard this before? Um, <laughs> that's, that's, there you go, see? I mean, the, the the number of times, and it really does seem to be, I, 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 I don't know if I'm just conjuring this in my mind, but it seems that we always seem to be the team that gets Celtic immediately after a, a European fixture on Thursday, and they're maybe, they're maybe looking... A bit on the ropes, and we all talk ourselves into the fact, to, in, in, into the thought that this is going to be the weekend where we'll, we'll turn them over, and then, and then we, we come back from Pataudry with another, another defeat, and we wonder how on earth it's all unravelled. At least we won't have to be walking back from Pataudry on this occasion if it does all go wrong. So uh, there is, there is that. But, but the, the opportunities are risen again. It, it, it doesn't make it any less true that they are there to be taken again. So. Um, it's one of those things where if you if you point out the fact that Celtic are struggling and that we're doing really well and we really should be taking advantage, if if the result doesn't go our way, these are the kind of things where you then get trolled online afterwards for daring to suggest we could have gotten a result. But but it's true, Celtic are really struggling at the moment. Lost our last couple of matches, and it's not just that they've lost their last couple of games. They really they really haven't looked impressive um, during those matches either. Uh, they're, they're, they're suffering a lot of absences um, through some. I think some of their, some of their players that still um, might still be requiring it to self isolate from uh, having been away in international duty, and uh, the the I, I'd be fascinated to see how they actually end up lining up against us. As much as I'm fascinated to find out how we line up against them, um, because on the one hand, I, I know the suggestion is that with players like Welsh and, and Duffy if they are you know playing in the defence it might be good to get that kind of you know an Edmondson or a Cosgrove or a physical type in against them I wonder if that might actually be playing more in, into the hands of a Shane Duffy type and I actually I actually did wonder if, if they are going to have that kind of traditional lumbering centre half whether that might actually then suggest we go back to a more fluid mobile mobile front three where they can easily interchange with each other's positions and and we maybe try and run rings around them and, and, and bring pressure that way instead. So it'll be fascinating to see how it how it how it works out. Um, I agree with Richard. I think the big big question will be: Will Johnny Hayes be fit to play? Because I think how we play will be entirely dictated actually by whether Johnny Hayes is, is fit and able to play. Because I think if he's able to hold down that left wing position, then I think we do return to the. I think we do. I think uh, McInnes would prefer to stick with the three four three for for that game. Um, and, and and roll that back, but I think it's hard enough to do that. I, I would struggle to imagine he would still want Ryan Hedges to be another on the other side of that. I would imagine he would be playing further forward. So you know, there's there's enough questions as it is with who would be the right wing back in that circumstance. Let alone if 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 Hayes isn't available. So I, I tend to agree. I think if, if 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 the personnel isn't available this time round, then it may well be more a, a traditional back four and have maybe. Maybe Constantine and Logan as your fullbacks again, and um, I, you know I think there is a propensity. This is the kind of game that I would expect. Maybe I'm, I'm, I was a bit surprised to see Dylan McGee playing and during midweek, but I wonder 
if that was a thought to kind of bring in that additional player in midfield again so to either match up or overnumber Celtic in midfield to have McGeek in there with Ferguson and, and, and McCrory uh, and, and, and try and get a footing in the middle of the park as well so it'll be it'll be interesting If it's going to be three it's definitely going to be five in the midfield it's definitely going to be it's going to be the extra body in if it's going to be a three at the back it will not be a three four three. it'll be more like a three five two. And one final thing of course we saw um, that the club um, have asked or did ask the Scottish government um, if potentially getting some getting another test event and getting a getting a five percent capacity of fans in um, to the sta- the stadium. Dave Cormack had tweeted it out um, last week, uh, Martin, um, and says that the they got a polite no from the Scottish government and and Jason Leach he tagged it as well. Now um, I'm sure yourself, much like my, me and Richard, no. We're not public health experts, um, and we're not, you know, experts on for you know, c- no contagious viruses or anything like that. I mean, um, it's it's looking ever more likely that it's going to be a long time before we're back in stadiums. Unfortunately, isn't it? I, I think that'll be the reality. I'll, I'll I'll try and keep out of the political aspects of this, but um, um, I think the reality is, I mean. I share everybody else's frustration about not being able to get back to Pataudry or, or be able to get back to any football. I think it's actually um, one of our other uh, Red Final contributors who, who um, spends a lot of his time travelling to watch lower-tier football across not only our country but England as well. Um, and, and a few other people were saying, you know, even even if we weren't able to get kind of you know significant crowds back to an Aberdeen game, you know, you would think. Is it really going to be that big of an issue if you know we were to have an opportunity to have 100 people in it, you know, a Bucky Thistle game or a or a Devon Vale game? Or I was thinking with the the Aberdeen FC women being back up and running this week, and they they're not able to have people at those games as well. It's just it's just really unfortunate that you know it, under other circumstances, if we weren't able to get to Petaudry, it would have been great if we were able to get to other games like that. But you're absolutely right. I think for, for the foreseeable future, I don't think we're going to be seeing uh, crowds back for probably for the rest of this year and given the fact that emergency uh, legislation is in place until the end of March next year you're you're really beginning to look at you know the vast bulk of the season potentially being lost and I feel most sorry for you know obviously obviously it's really difficult for the club although again Aberdeen are in a, a, a much better position than a number of other clubs further down the 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 the, the, the Scottish uh, football leagues where you know getting attendances in or even just getting people in to be able to like buy a pie and bovril might make the difference between you know being able to maintain their business and not but obviously it's an impactful at our end as well and I think everybody accepts I mean you know a lot a lot of people are frustrated about the fact that you know if you're going to be at the football ground you know if you if you, if you manage to get a few hundred or a few thousand people in Petaudry you can you can get them spaced out in the seating. It's effect, although although it's technically considered an enclosed uh, environment, it's obviously outdoors. So I think you know the the actual risk within the stadium I think is actually pretty low. And I, and I think even from the public health experts, I think they would accept that. But I think you know, in fairness to them, their their considerations are around you know that what we probably think of as the match day experience is you know how do all those people get to to the ground and back and you know we all know how busy it is in the streets around about Petaudry and you know on King Street you know in immediate, immediately beforehand and in the immediate aftermath of the game you know not to mention the pubs and clubs I, 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 I dread to think what it's like for um, establishments like you know the Petaudry Bar and the Bobbin at the moment where you know you're not getting custom anyway at the moment and when you lose that kind of significant revenue as well it's you know it must be hellish for everybody and, and, and most of all I feel sorry for the fans I mean um, it's a big. No, no, nobody, nobody makes a big fuss about it at the moment. But they would deserve. They, they, they would have every right to about having been asked to spend an awful lot of money on season tickets or paying, you know, uh, twelve, thirteen pounds in order to be able to watch red TV uh, coverage. I think for, for those people that are able to afford it, I don't think anyone does that begrudgingly for the most part. But it's an awful lot of money to pay out for nothing. And some of the kind of facetious comments you see, where you know. You know, what, why, why should you grumble? You know, the, the, with, the, with the English Premier League kind of comments, some, some ill-advised comments of why would you, why would you think that that's a, you know, it's not too much money to spend fifteen pounds for a, for a, a, a pass to watch a game on, 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 on a stream. Those, 
those comments tend to come from the kind of people that have never felt how much of a difference £15 in the pocket can be from, from one week to the next. So um, for those people that have paid their season tickets and continue to pay their PPV, um, I, I salute them and I think we all just hope that we can get past this as soon as it's safe to do so and get back to be able to support our team from the stands. Yeah, there's a, there's a few threads there, isn't there? I, I think from a fan's perspective, those of us that have paid our money and got our tickets, you know, you're right. I'm not sure how many of us begrudge it. I think possibly the club, with the right intentions, and, and we certainly weren't the only club, were maybe a bit overly bullish um, during the summer as to how quickly and... Um, Rapidly, they'd be able to get fans back into the stadium, perhaps. Um, obviously, you know, we're now into October with, with no end in sight, despite the... Well, there is at least now a clear pathway as to when we'd be allowed limited fans in stadiums. But And the key is limited. Obviously, the club's not going to make any money from actual supporters, for quite a while because you know your first 9,000 seats or whatever are season ticket holders what the club and what Aberdeen in particular will be very very keen though is to be able to get the hospitality back up and running that's absolutely key to Aberdeen it's what sets us apart at least financially from Hibs and Hearts because what sets us apart from Hibs and Hearts is not getting relegated every 6 minutes but um, <laughs> that will be very very important to um to the board of directors, to Dave Cormack, um, because because that is a big part of our income in any given year. And so it's not just the, the lack of uh, fans through the gate, because as I say, the, the actual the income from supporters, clearly it's down, but it, it's not completely evaporated like the, the corporate income has. That brings our brings our podcast to a close, the, close uh, this week. I uh, want to just thank you, thank you all out there for those of you that sent in um, your tweets and replied to a request for your memories of Ebb Scovedale. Really was um, really was great reading them all. Um, Richard, thanks again. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. Cheers, Martin. No problem. Uh, Martin, great to have you back on the show as well. Just remind us when and where we'll be able to get our eyes on the red final again. That's a great question. We're, we're, we're certainly working in the background to try and get something out as... Some of you may remember we did have a when when we first went into lockdown we did a a little pilot of uh, uh, a red final on a, on a virtual environment back around about April May time um, and given the fact that it seems unlikely that we're going to get as we just discussed it seems unlikely we're going to get a, an opportunity to be able to hang around the, the 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 corners of the stadium for the foreseeable future we we're going to try and get another virtual edition out soon so. Um, I believe the call has been raised already on social media. If people want to make their own contributions, uh, we're we're busy in the background putting some material together. I mean, there's certainly no shortage of things to be able to write about over the last six months. Um, and so we'll hopefully have something, sadly, in a virtual format rather than a traditional fanzine format, but we'll, we'll hope to have something out in the next month or so. At least it saves you spend it, spending an hour standing on uh, Merkland Road in the freezing cold. <laughs> yeah, nobody ever talks about the positives of the coronavirus outbreak, <laughs> but yeah, being able to stay indoors and, and keep cosy is uh, one of the few benefits. Like <laughs> well, I said, that brings us to close for this week. I want to thank you all for listening. Um, remember, uh, please leave please leave your feedback. Please get back to us um, on on Twitter as well if you've got any comments on the podcast. We do want to hear we hear your feedback. Um, until the next week, um, we'll have a, ver- uh, a debrief on Sunday after the Celtic game. Uh, but until then, come on you Reds.